Hello, and welcome to On Consciousness with Bernard Bars. I'm David Edelman, neuroscientist and your co-host, and I'm here, of course, with Bernie Bars. And today we'll be discussing animal consciousness, the idea of animal consciousness, the problems it presents, and the potential future for this area of study. So, Bernie, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks. I have been thinking more and more, obviously, along with your dad and everybody else at the Neurosciences Institute uh, when we were both there. Uh, and one of the fellows actually proposed that fruit flies must be conscious. And I didn't take that seriously, but I'm sort of backtracking. That's, in a way, sort of ancient history, right? Now that we've sort of come around 15 years after we had those first discussions at the Neurosciences Institute. It's ancient history, but ancient history in the case of consciousness turns out to be really important because we didn't invent consciousness in 1980, as some people seem to think. Uh, we invented uh, consciousness very, very early in human history, obviously, maybe after the advent of language, who knows. And we have enormously sophisticated traditions, but we don't recognize them very easily. And as you're a paleoanthropologist, you would know about that. Right. Well, yeah, I, I, of course, uh, I started my professional career as a paleoanthropologist. Now, of course, I'm, I ventured into neuroscience and uh, it's been an interesting road. But, you know, it's, it's, we find ourselves at sort of a crossroads in a way. And 15 years after those seminal discussions we had, we're still asking the question, how do we frame the problem of animal consciousness? So first of all, where is consciousness located? And what does that mean when you're talking about different animals? What do you think? In my own career, I've come from psychology to uh, directly addressing the evidence that we have about consciousness, which actually turns out to be a great deal. Uh, and then, of course, with the Neurosciences Institute, uh, I essentially migrated into psychobiology or something like that. Uh, and that includes anthropology as well. It's an enormous umbrella category. And suddenly, to me at least, uh, within the biological realm or biomedical really, because a lot of stuff comes from medical studies of human patients, within that realm, um, I've become more and more convinced that uh, cortex is the organ of consciousness. And, and once you've got the evidence settled for that position, then of course, in biology, what you do is you start to hop between species, uh, the ones that you feel confident about, and then look at the ones that you feel less confident about. Stop there for a second. And let's think about hopping species. So, of course, you know, I think you and I are in complete agreement that while it's not an, necessarily an easy or straight, perfectly straightforward task to move from human beings to non-human mammals, it's nevertheless made a little bit easier by the fact that we have these homologous structures. We can certainly identify what looks to be cortex 
in your garden variety mammal from primates to cetaceans to well possums to even more primitive uh you know marsupials we can still see structure that looks like cortex right but we're sort of faced with a conundrum when we move somewhat beyond and as i think you and i have discussed before when we move to say birds we have an interesting issue because we're we're running up against sort of some historical paradigms in which bird brains were classified in a particular way but that classification scheme doesn't necessarily help us these days and in fact we've we've sort of moved beyond it haven't we so even though birds don't have a structure that really sort of looks from a macro point of view like cortex we know that there are homologous structures there and that in fact the constituent neurons that make up sort of the upper reaches of the bird brain are essentially, you know, composed of their cortical neurons that have migrated during embryogenesis up to where they need to be. And so something like the neopallium is essentially akin to the cortex in mammals, the neopallium of birds. Is that fair, Bernie? I have to listen to the comparative biologists on this kind of stuff, of course, uh, because they have really done a very beautiful job of of comparing nervous systems. And now, as you know, uh, they're essentially claiming that we should use the word cortex for birds and, yes, and, and other phyla or something. Yeah, and that, that makes a lot of sense, you know, and I think that over the past, uh, well, probably almost 50 years, if you can take, take into account the work of, of folks like Harvey Carton, who, you know, retired relatively recently from UCSD, he was uh, sort of working in the vineyards long before anyone else was on to the possibility that birds essentially had something that structurally and functionally was effectively cortex. And so Harvey early on hit on this kind of stuff. And later on, this was built on by people like Eric Jarvis and Ann Butler who eventually made a really strong case along with the earlier work by, by Harvey that if you look from a developmental perspective, that is from development of the early brain during, during embryogenesis, or you look even from a molecular standpoint, if you look at the molecular markers for particular kinds of nerve cells, particular kinds of neurons, cortical neurons of certain varieties, pyramidal cells, et cetera, that you see all of the unique markers of cortex in birds just the way you would find them in mammals so i i don't think that that case is controversial anymore do you my impression is uh, somewhat secondhand but uh, my impression is that's absolutely correct yes so and uh, and by the way uh, uh, biologists are far too shy uh, on this topic uh, because the whole world wants to know the answer on this and uh, and i know that Harvey Carton and, and Butler and so on, uh, that those people have strong convictions, uh, but uh, that's probably not known in the general public that the science, the best science that we have right now, uh, seems to show that we're creeping toward animal consciousness. Absolutely. Now, as you know, and as, as we've long discussed, both as friends and as colleagues, I have an interest in animals that are 
really, really distant from the vertebrate line. I got really, really interested in cephalopods, in particular octopuses. Oh, starting about um, 15 years ago when you, uh, Anil Seth, and myself sat down for very early discussions about animal consciousness over lunches. And I really asked the question then, and we, of course, framed that question in a paper that we wrote together in, 20, in 2005. Can we extend the umbrella of animal consciousness to animals uh, that don't have backbones, like the cephalopods? And, and early on, as you know, uh, I made that case, or at least I framed that possibility with the idea that, first of all, while their brains were perhaps nowhere near as complex as your garden variety mammal, octopuses had nevertheless had really large brains, particularly for invertebrates. And when I say large brains, I have to be very particular about this. Large central brains, because of course, three-fifths of their nervous system is actually located in their arms. But the stuff between their eyes, that central brain, in a common octopus, you're talking about 200 million neurons. And to give us a little perspective on that number, well, your garden variety cat has about 400 million neurons. And if you look at the rat on the other side of the scale in a way, you have an animal that has roughly 100 million neurons in its brain. And so the octopus sort of neatly falls in between if you're just talking about the central brain or what we would call the central nervous system in invertebrates. And so that's really intriguing. That suggested to me early on that octopuses, if any animal among the invertebrates were a potential candidate for conscious processing, it would probably be cephalopods and specifically octopuses, given that. And then if you look at their behaviors, uh, which are very well characterized as opposed to their brains, which are not so well characterized, they have a rich panoply of behaviors uh, that people have recorded well, probably for thousands of years, but in any kind of systematic way for at least the past 70 or 80 years. So behaviorally, they're really complex. They're good problem solvers. In the wild, they're very capable hunters. They seem to watch what's going on around them and then go through some sort of a decision, what looks like some sort of a decision-making process to either go after their prey, ignore it, or avoid a predator. So that's really, really interesting. And so that is somewhat more controversial, of course, than arguing for animal consciousness in vertebrates, in particular higher vertebrates like birds and mammals. But I think, you know, we're getting to the point where a reasonable case might be made. What do you think? I'm going in parallel with you. Coming from originally from the field called cognitive science or cognitive psychology, what we looked at was psychological evidence, and there's lots of ways you can get psychological evidence, most uh, almost 90% or more in, in human beings. And then at some transition point, uh, when we were beginning to get very good studies of the visual cortex in humans, uh, it turned out that Van Essen and other people had done beautiful microanatomy uh, on the visual cortex, but not in humans, uh, in the macaques. 
And what yeah. happened was that some of the scientists who got into that started to confuse the map of the macaque visual system with the human version, uh, which is not quite right. Uh, but it's, a, it's an illustration, right, of, of we get, we start to make mistakes between species. And that's a good sign that maybe they're similar. Yeah, that there's that there's closeness there. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, and in the case of Fellman and Van Essen's work, I remember Dan Fellman in there. Uh, in the case of their work, it's really, it's, it's quite good work. It's really rather workmanlike. It's a pretty impressive job that they did. But it's intriguing. As you said, it, it becomes very easy to confuse or conflate non-human primate cortical maps with human cortical maps, a la Fellman and Van Essen. There is so much similarity there. Now, to put that into a bit of perspective, I think if you ask somebody like Dan Fellman today, well, you know, how many areas make up visual cortex? Uh, I would say that Dan has probably upgraded his estimates since those those earlier maps. And he would say in the case of the human, there might be up to 70 distinct visual areas. Now, I don't know whether that's right or not, but it's really intriguing because I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that we started off in the mid 30s, give or take, right? G generically for, for primates overall. Is that right? 30 to 35 visual areas, something like that. All this goes back to Brobrin areas of cortex, which were based on uh, microscopic studies uh, of the cells. Uh, and you could actually characterize the cellular anatomy, if you will, uh, of the cortex in very nice ways that have turned out to be stable, right? We're, we're still using those. So from that point of view, we have a very coherent history there. Uh, going back to Cajal in 1900. Uh, and it's really important in science, I think at least, to be aware of the history of the field uh, because otherwise you, you, you get lost. And everybody, you know, historically, there's so much detail going back to Cajal and, and folks working more than 100 years ago that's still quite relevant today and as you and i know a lot of good stuff a lot of good work that's been done historically gets sort of lost in the shuffle the people who perpetrated the work either become anonymous somehow and or the actual work itself is somehow lost now that's of course not an unusual phenomenon it happens all the time not just in science but in any kind of historical telling and retelling of a series of events. So not unusual at all. I think, you know, just to sort of close off this, the, the discussion of sort of cortex writ large and in particular visual cortex, um, visual cortex represents, I think, a sort of a really good starting point for a variety of studies many of which relate to conscious processing, obviously, because vision is a fairly accessible um, sensory modality experimentally. Certainly, uh, I mean, I shouldn't say accessible. Maybe I should say sort of more cut and dried in a way in terms of designing experiments than, say, something like olfaction. And olfaction has its own problems, of course, because the olfactory, olfactory sensation isn't running through the thalamus, the way that other aspects of sensoria are. So let's leave that aside. 
But Vision is really sort of a, a great launching point experimentally, I think, for all kinds of studies related to consciousness. So let's sort of close that off and move on to the idea uh, that we have really just one set of examples for consciousness, at least putative examples of consciousness. And that exists within this very, very sort of narrow realm, this wisp of an atmosphere and uh, marine environment, the biosphere of our planet. That is the one place where we know we find conscious entities, right? Uh, and that's the only place in which we've observed those entities. Now, sometime in the future, and we'll, we can probably come back to this toward the end of the podcast, we can probably at least entertain the possibility of uh, consciousness in human-made artifacts. We'll, we'll leave that for now. But we probably should avoid, at least for this podcast, any discussion of sort of consciousness in the great big wide realm of the universe. Uh, and I think for our purposes, we should definitely leave aside the prospect of essentially a conscious universe in a sense, or any notion of um, panpsychism, as it were, without, without unpacking that, because that, I think that is a whole, a whole other podcast. So let's leave that behind for now. And let's kind of move on, Bernie. I think, you know, the next thing for us to really do is lay out the problem of defining consciousness. And that's a problem both from a theoretical perspective, but also it's a problem that bears on how we design experiments. In other words, in a way, we sort of have to have a working definition of some sort in order to know what we're looking for or in order to know what our ev evidentiary basis is going to be, right? Exactly. And, uh, and it's kind of a ratcheting process of picking some plausible place to start and then seeing what we know about that in the case of consciousness, the conventional place to start in psychology is whether you can, you know, point to the same object and if your scientist agrees with you, uh, you're conscious of that object. Uh, scientists are extremely uh, skeptical uh, as a rule and that's a practical thing uh, because because we, the, the only way we get a feeling of stability and a feeling of certainty about anything really in the world is to start from what we know and then to gradually go to what we do not know. And, and this is a miraculous process, by the way, that happens largely unconsciously for me at least, and I suppose for most of us. And of course, it's consciously mediated uh, you know, from moment to moment, every time we read a, a new piece of news in a journal, uh, and suddenly the accretion of knowledge, which is mostly unconscious, that we have, it, it just grows a little bit. And, and that is a creative process. Now, it's not a, a rigid, you know, uh, uh, well-defined, uh, deterministic step-by-step -step thing. It's very much a creative process. As your dad had a great saying about that. I think uh, imagination... In service of the verifiable truth, I think. That's great. Yes, yes, yes. And I think that's, that's, that's very, very true. And you have to think, you know, you have to approach science as a creative pursuit. And 
in the sense that it's a creative pursuit, imagination is really, really engaged. And in the best science and within the best of scientists, uh, imagination is absolutely at the forefront. And so when we speak of imagination, in a way we have to sort of engage in a back and forth between sort of empirical, the empirical work, you know, laying out a good sort of empirical investigation. And that means, you know, designing and running tight experiments that really get to the core of the issue. But as well, it also means every once in a while stepping back and being simply a good observer. And observational, the observational aspect of science, that is, in a sense, in a sense, the natural history aspect, I think is often given short shrift because uh, folks in, in my field, in our fields collectively, tend to ignore, well, they tend to ignore Chuck Darwin. They tend to ignore what Darwin laid out. And it isn't just about the notion of natural selection, of course, right? It's also about the idea that you're sort of watching a process and that it is a process. And sometimes what gets in the way of sort of taking stock of the natural history is the fact that experiments are often designed to sort of be snapshots. They're designed to sort of uh, apprehend a moment in time, right? It's, it's binary in a sense. It's either this or it's that, but it's rendered sort of as a snapshot. Whereas when you're doing good natural history, of course, you're observing a process unfold, right? And the, there's a lot of virtue to that. And I think one of the reasons, in a sense, that Darwin gets left behind or what, you know, the rubric of Darwinian evolution kind of gets lost in the shuffle is that it doesn't fit the mold of sort of classic empirical science. Because, of course, if you think about it, what Darwin is rendering uh, are stories that have already unfolded, some of them millions or tens or hundreds of millions of years ago, and those experiments have already run. So we're not going to ever reproduce them. We can only reconstruct from, well, first of all, the fossil record, uh, but second of all, from the behavior and the anatomy and the physiology of living animals. And so I think there's a tension there, but it's a useful tension. And in the case of animal consciousness, I think this is really important because we are observing processes. Consciousness is, as, as famously was, as, as was famously put uh, some time ago, consciousness is process, not thing. We all know who said that, or some of us know who said that. And that's a really important idea because if you render your observations simply as snapshots and don't weave in sort of the richness of the tapestry, the behavior that, you know, animals can use to report to us, oh, I'm conscious of, event, of an event or I'm not conscious of an event, we sort of miss the story. How does that sound? I totally agree. And actually, uh, some of this stuff has been recurring in my mind in, in kind of a uh, pressing way in the last couple of months. Darwin was a naturalist. Uh, he was not a reductionist because he didn't have a persuasive way to reduce whatever he observed, and he loved to observe. He lived a life of observation, really, even 
in England and uh, everywhere. It was just asking questions, talking to interesting people and, and, and making observations. Uh, and basically he was weaving what's called a nomological network, uh, which is sort of a, a spider web of its own. Uh, and it does not depend on uh, explaining things in molecular terms. For example, now if you can make that journey down to molecules, that's a very good thing. You, you don't, you know, it's, it's a good thing because it it supports what you think is happening or falsifies it. Either way is good. Uh, and uh, uh, but but Darwin did not know about genes, right? He did not know about DNA. Uh, he did not know about neurons. Actually, come to think of it, uh, although he presumably tended to think that there were such cells, but this is a perfectly legitimate kind of science. It's very, very important. Absolutely. And again, we go back to this issue of sort of the dangers of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. The idea that, of course, Darwin's purview was limited to the science of the time, both empirical and observational, and he did the best with what he had, essentially. And his contribution nevertheless remains valuable. Now, when we talk about something like animal consciousness and the idea of pinning it down in a non-human animal, um, we do have to engage in, in some rather systematic forms of observation. We do have uh, recourse to hard-nosed empirical experimentation simply because in the case of animals that are not so far from us non-human primates other mammals perhaps even birds we have the benefit of uh, comparative anatomy and physiology we also have the benefit of uh, observing behavior right in the human case of course we have the reference standard of accurate verbal report that is the idea that language gives us the capacity to tell our interrogator or the experimenter what we are and aren't aware of. And that's really, really great for people who work with humans um, in, in the case of, of, of consciousness studies. In the case of non-human animals, we have to obviously get a little bit creative, a little bit more creative. We have to decide what behaviors can be used as similar sorts of markers as their own forms of report and of course not necessarily that tough if you're talking about non-human primates great apes um, even some old world and perhaps a few new world monkeys gets a little bit difficult when you get a little further afield um, in the case of birds obviously it's it's sort of weird terrain right because we have citizen birds like parrots which not only do sort of classic mimicry really well they're great vocal learners they're famous for their vocal learning they can listen to sounds to words to people producing different different suites of phonemes and certain birds can emulate these really quite well so in the case of of certain parrots and i'm thinking of one in particular i'm thinking of alex the parrot irene pepperberg's favorite subject animal 
uh, and others others of his ilk. She, Irene, of course, worked with a number of parrots over the past uh, more than 30 years. They can give us something that really seems like accurate verbal report, but they're really a standout, aren't they? They're unusual. In terms of verbal specifically report, yes. But in terms of gestures and matching previous and, and current input, you can uh, phony up a way to approach uh, animals who don't have language. Yes, that's right. That's right. You, can, you can certainly do that. And of course, there's plenty in the literature that doesn't deal directly with awareness in non-human animals, but does deal with aspects of higher cognition that suggests that, you know, of course, animals have the capacity to make rich varieties of sound. And oftentimes those sounds can and can be and are associated with certain things in their world, right? So those sounds end up becoming, in a sense, sort of representations or represent representative of particular objects in the world. We have the classic case of uh, vervet monkeys, the work done by Dorothy Cheney and Robert Safarth back starting in the late 70s, early 80s, um, that suggested that animals can assign meaning to certain kinds of sounds and can reproducibly do so. So that's really useful for us to know. That's a great starting point if you're talking about non-human primates. As you move away, of course, when you get to other vertebrates, becomes somewhat more challenging, but not at all impossible. When you get to animals like octopus, which seem completely alien, well, it's not that all bets are off. It's just that we're really, really early in the game. And we haven't really yet described in a systematic way, well, their functional anatomy and physiology, even though we have bits and pieces of that. We know in the wild how rich their behavioral repertoire is and also in the laboratory to a certain extent. We know a little bit about their memory capacity, et cetera, et cetera. While we're not flying in the dark there, we do have a long, long way to go. And perhaps it's useful now to kind of pull back a bit and, and so we'll step back and, and just consider what we're talking about when we're talking about consciousness. Now, I'm going to make a distinction right off the bat, and I think you'll agree with the distinction. Um, and that distinction is between sensory consciousness and higher order or self-awareness, higher order aware uh, consciousness of the self. That is a distinction that isn't necessarily made by everybody, but I think in terms of what we're talking about today, it's a really useful distinction because sensory consciousness to my mind is a, a sort of a lower hanging fruit if you're talking about non-human species uh, and when we're talking about sensory consciousness i'll give you my definition if you give me yours so my definition which is sort of based a bit on my father it's a riff off my father's definition is the idea that sensory consciousness consists of the stitching together of various sensory modalities that that is all of the sensory inputs that are that are coming into your brain stitching them together into a sensory whole into a to a unified percept something that is of a piece and then the second aspect is the memory of that unitary whole that is the persistence of that univer, unitary whole as some sort of a representation in your brain 
And that I would say is a sort of a very basic plain vanilla definition of consciousness. Does that pass muster with you, Bernie? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. Uh, and I've obviously been thinking about it for a while. Uh, sensory consciousness is the philosopher's standby uh, when it comes to what's called the hard problem, uh, which involves the claim that nobody can ever understand sensory consciousness. Now, we know that is not true. Uh, because once you start to investigate a visual cortex, for example, what you can do is, is find very, very similar and close uh, neuronal patches. And if you monitor one, uh, you're getting the brain unconsciously recognizing a patch of red. And if you monitor, uh, model, sorry, monitor its neighboring patch, what you find, uh, especially through the work of Dahan and Shanju, uh, what you find is, is this thing ignites, it explodes in just the right part of the visual brain where we see objects and persons and buildings, uh, which are higher level gestalts, uh, visual gestalts, of course. And then we can go beyond that and go into abstractions and beliefs and so on. Uh, but but the sensory part, uh, I, I don't think anybody who's well informed on the science would actually quarrel much with uh, homologies between humans and other similar animals. You think it's it is reasonable then to sort of extrapolate if you're at least talking about non-human mammals, if we start from the perspective of, of humans as sort of the reference standard, right? Well, we can move into non-human mammals and we can start to look for certain properties, certain properties, certain, certain, perhaps if you want to be a little bit looser, certain correlations, but certain markers that we know are present in the case of human consciousness that if, if we observe them in non-human animals, at least we start to have um, the beginnings of a sort of an evidentiary trail. Yes, exactly. So, so you go from known to unknown, uh, and you acknowledge what you don't know, obviously. And then you find, you know, you look around, uh, this is just like a scouting expedition in, in a wild territory. Uh, you look around and see if you can find an easy trail that goes from where you are to where you want to be. Exactly. So let's let's push this a little further. And again, I'm going to fall back on, on my favorite oddball case or my favorite oddball outlier, the octopus. Now, where, where we're dealing again with structures that while they're not terra incognita, while they're not you know akin to sort of those early 15th century maps of the world, which you know say something the effect of therein lie sea serpents or whatever, where where there are entire swaths of the planet that are just unknown and folks are just making it up as they go along. We're not at that point, in the case of the octopus and other cephalopods, other virtuous folks early on did some really, really good work on starting to map the nervous systems. And so at least functionally, they have an idea of what some parts of the cephalopod, the octopus nervous system is actually doing. Now they haven't really engaged in looking for the big C for consciousness in cephalopods. But that being said, we, we know enough now to say that octopus brains are 
essentially all but alien when we look at them from a macro perspective and compare them to say mammalian brains to vertebrate brains that you can't identify a cortex you can't really identify a thalamus uh, per se but interestingly enough functionally you can start to identify certain patterns of activity we i'm not saying that we've necessarily gone very far along those lines yet we haven't because it's very difficult to record for marine any kind of marine animal but octopuses especially but it's certainly i think a reasonable surmise that if we it's not it's sort of the quacks like a duck surmise that if you observe a pattern of you know function and it's functional connectivity over long distances in the brain or it's just simply uh, firing patterns in disparate areas of the brain if you observe a pattern that makes you go hey i've seen something like that before in a conscious mammal or in a conscious human more particularly i think that's a reasonable starting point as alien as, as an octopus may be if you start to see really familiar looking uh, functional patterns i think that's a good hook on which to hang your hat at least to begin with does that seem fair absolutely i think the the one-liner on mammals and octopi and such is that they have their brains wrapped around their throats exactly one of my favorite comparisons is between an octopus brain and a fruit fly brain the central brains of both those animals because if you look at them there is a sort of a bow plane that's an old term it literally means body plan but it goes back to sort of darwin and even before but if you look at the design of the brain there's more in common in terms of large-scale structures there's more in common between a fruit fly and an octopus macrostructurally than there is between an octopus which is a pretty complex an octopus brain which is pretty, pretty complex and a mammalian brain and when i say that i'm sort of referring to the classic sort of structure that wraps around the esophagus and that's what you see in a fruit fly and that's what you see in an octopus in fact the first time i saw an octopus brain exposed i said to myself wow that looks like a fruit fly brain at 500x in a, in a really good microscope when you delve deeper of course you realize that the complexity is far beyond that of a, of a fruit fly in terms of both the number of neurons and putatively the number of connections between those neurons and the sub sort of specialized sub areas uh and all so yeah i think that that's fair bernie and so i think from that standpoint from the standpoint of of function functional physiology and the functional anatomy that is mapping out the actual functional pathways that is a very strong possible direction to take if you're starting if you want to pin down higher function and in particular conscious processing in an animal like an octopus uh, the other aspect again to sort of fall back a bit is of course the behavioral end of things we know octopuses have this sophisticated suite of 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 behaviors we know that they're they're good problem solvers and we can sort of build a case as well on that and we can certainly i think at least think of the day or look forward to the day when we can come up with some sort of a behavioral report for octopuses that sort of works well one thing that uh, that has worked really well for the last uh, two centuries and more in psychology and and psychophysiology of course is sensory psychophysics so so tell me what are the psychophysics of octopi like it's very coarse-grained stuff at this point 
I don't think anybody has really taken a systematic uh, psychophysical approach yet. I think there are little smatterings here and there. I think some work probably done by Jay-Z Young and Stuart Sutherland and all those guys that were toiling away at the Statue of Logica in the 50s and the 60s. You know, some of that you can sort of pull out some keen psychological kernels from. Um, but overall, I don't think anybody's approached this systematically. And we're, it's actually astonishing to me historically that they haven't because octopuses have these great eyes. They're really, really rich visual animals, right? In a way that you really can't say for a lot of other invertebrates, but octopuses really sort of overlap the visual richness that you, you observe in, in the vertebrates, in particular higher vertebrates like birds and in fact some mammals. So that's a good area I think to explore. I think the visual psych, the psychophysics of octopus vision is actually a potentially rich area to mine in the future, but we're, we're not there yet, I don't think. So kind of in the interest of time, let's close off by just touching briefly on that next aspect of consciousness or that other realm of consciousness that I alluded to before, self-consciousness, the idea of being aware of the self in a scene. We've talked about sensory consciousness, the idea of being aware of a scene itself, aware of the world somehow, the sensory world. But let's move on to awareness of the self. How would you distinguish this? So how would you lay this out in a nutshell, Bernie? It's been talked about in overly sophisticated ways, and people try to make subtle distinctions. But I think uh, that if you look at the self-conscious emotions, which are pride and shame, among others, but pride and shame emerge in human development around three years of age. So that's very early, and it has a dramatic effect, as you can see, if you, if you see toddlers, uh, uh, when they are embarrassed, which happens all the time when they're being teased uh, by other toddlers, and the teased toddler will really try to hide, it will try to sink into the ground. And that is a, a very profound and biological kind of self-consciousness. And, and I think it's much more clear than the kind of airy-fairy speculations that we normally get about that. That's actually a beautiful example, Bernie. Uh, I think, I, and I think that's, that's an area that really brings to the fore the importance of sort of exploring these sorts of questions in a developmental way, looking back at early on in development. And it's, it's really quite, it's a crystalline sort of example because you don't have the sort of vicissitudes of language that come in and perhaps create potential confounds in terms of what you're observing. You're sort of observing a ver the very, the, the elemental self. And I think that's, that's a beautiful notion. I think to sort of close this whole thing off, I think it, it's exciting in the human case. It's, it's somewhat thorny in the non-human animal case. Well, not, not so much in animals that are close to us, like the non-human primates, because we do have a notion of their expression of emotional valence. And I think some clever guy, and, and some people I think have already done this, uh, can or have come up with experiments that tie emotional expression to somehow an awareness of the self in a particular context, a sort of a contextual self-awareness. I think that stuff already exists. So we won't dwell on it here in the interest of time because I think we have to wrap up. 
but I think that's a really, really good way to go. In the case of the octopus, of course, um, I'll just close off with the, the notion that I am totally lost if you ask me when, how, and if an octopus is emoting. Although I can tell you when I've sort of, I've shown a, a, an octopus, a live crab from a distance, that octopus sort of turns a deep red and makes a beeline for that crab like there's no tomorrow. But that whole notion of sort of changing your body color and texture in such a strong and dramatic way, you sort of have to ask what, you know, in a sense, what is that for? What is that animal doing that for? Uh, what purpose does it serve? Is it a signal of some sort or whatever? But, you know, some people might very persuasively make the case eventually that that is a display of some sort of an emotional valence in that animal. I'm going to leave it there. Any closing thoughts, Bernie, on the, the whole overall picture? Here's a wild guess. Uh, the octopus, when it turns red, it's really saying, it's mine. It's mine. I like that. That's great. Well, I think Bernie and I really enjoyed our foray into animal consciousness today. Spend a little time with your pet, whether it's a cat, a dog, a bird, a tortoise, and ask yourself, what are they thinking? I'm David Edelman. I've been talking with Bernie Bars about animal consciousness, and this is the podcast on consciousness with Bernie Bars.